Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. The pandemic made a lot of people realize just how difficult it could be to be alone, especially for long periods of time. Now there's new evidence that suggests it can be just as unhealthy as smoking 12 cigarettes a day. I speak with an expert in social interactions about why socialization is so important to people and what you could do to address chronic illness. Michael J. Fox recently said he won't make it to 80 because of his Parkinson's disease, but that hasn't taken any of the light out of his life. I speak with a movement disorder expert on how Parkinson's can affect the body, why Michael J. Fox decided to share this news now, and what developments have occurred in treatments. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. First conversation I want to have is about sleeping, and I'd like you to share with me. And the way you can do that is by calling or texting 877-399-9898. The question is, how do you sleep? On your side, on your back, or on your front? Because there's eight popular sleeping positions, and the positions that you sleep in can tell a lot about you, can talk a lot about you, tell a lot about your personality, and can have a huge impact on the quality of day that you might have the next day when you wake up from what would hope to be a good night's sleep. And you know, if you've heard the show before, we talk a lot about sleep and nutrition and fitness just in terms of it generally being something you want to have in check for good mental health, good physical health. It's just something that's really important. And the sleep part is, I think, really critical to um, resetting yourself, especially as you get a little older in life, you know, resetting yourself, uh, giving your body a chance to calm down, giving your brain a chance to slow down, give your eyes a chance to rest and so on. And how you sleep has a lot to do with the kind of sleep you're going to have. So I got to tell you, I I cheat a little bit because I have a device called an Aura, and this is no way a commercial for Aura, but I wear a device called Aura. I wear it on my index finger. And it's kind of like a kind of like a Fitbitty kind of thing in terms of uh, what it provides, and it it gives me a lot of information about my sleep. So if we look at last night's sleep, which was you know I got an eighty nine, which means I got a crown, which is great. I don't get crowns very often, but if I sleep well, I get a crown, right? I get a kind of a reward. So last night I slept for nine hours and thirty two minutes, but I was actually in bed for eleven hours and twenty eight minutes. I know it was uh, it was a, a sleep in Saturday morning kind of thing, and my sleep efficiency was eighty seven percent. My heart rate was at 54 beats per minute and my overall sleep was good the efficiency was good my REM sleep my actual you know uh, REM sleep was an hour and 48 minutes I had deep sleep of two hours and four minutes and so on lots and lots of details and there's other ways you can see how many times I was up and down one two three four five six seven times I was awake and five times actually up and down from bed that's a whole nother story so um, I have a device that kind of tells me how I slept. So it can be good or bad if you want the information. It's something that can help you or not, depending on what you do with it. But the positions that we sleep in, have you ever wondered what your preferred sleep position is and what it actually means and how it connects to your personality? So there's research that's done in terms of the topic of a person's favorite sleep position. And what we've learned from that is it relates to their personality. Um, you know, it, it kind of how it relates to the personality. And it, it, it's not, the study hasn't been peer reviewed, but in fact, it's interesting information. So take it or leave it for what it's worth. Uh, but when it comes to your health, the best sleeping position that w- is the one that allows you, frankly, to get the best night's sleep. So I'm all about pillows. 
I need lots of pillows in position for me to have a decent night's sleep. I need a pillow for my legs. I need a separate pillow under my arms. So I kind of sleep on a body pillow, but it's two pieces um, and it's kind of tucked under my legs. Sleep for me is a really big deal. I've got some back issues. Uh, I have some mental health issues and it helps with both in, in a big way. Helps my back, obviously, in terms of being restful and helps my mind in terms of also giving me a chance to break away from my day and kind of find a, a comfortable place to regenerate myself, right? Re renew my battery, if you will. So I, I sleep with pillows, my you know, and I had and for for me sleeping needs to be just right. I'm a side sleeper. We'll get to what that means in a minute. Uh, but you know, a good night's sleep has to do with how you go to bed, your mindset when going to bed, and in this case, we're talking about the physical positioning of one's body. Okay, so there um, you can actually uh, derive sleep data. So if you want to optimize your comfort. Um, you want to do things to relieve stress points uh, in your body physically. So that's why pillows work for me. Some people, it's a leg over the other on the side. It's kind of a fetalish position, depending on uh, what makes you comfortable. And, you know, the device that I was sharing with you tracks things like blood ox oxygen levels and so on. These are things that are important to know. If you're not sleeping well, you want to be able to track that so you can talk to a sleep expert about it at some point. Um, but it's interesting what we can find out. So in back sleeping positions, there's really, um, there's really four back sleeping positions. One is called the soldier, which you can imagine what that looks like. You know, you're lying straight out, legs flat, arms basically flat. Another one called the starfish, where your legs are a little bit askew, kind of spread apart, uh, arms kind of in an odd position, one down, one up. Something called the stargazer, where your legs are crossed and your arms are behind your head kind of like you're looking up into the stars. And there's something called the knees up position, which is when you raise your knees up to your, up to your, uh, to your body. So back sleeping has a, a lot of benefits um, for your health, including spinal alignment, uh, relieves, relieves uh, tension in the headache, uh, in the head, so there's less chance of headache, uh, reduces pressure on the chest and the sinuses, uh, and it even helps prevent wrinkles, believe it or not, blemishes and irritations uh, on your face. Uh, but if you're sleeping on your back, it may also cause some neck pain problems. Uh, others may find it just a little more uncomfortable. I can't, I can't sleep on my back unless I can rest on my back. I need to have my legs up. So my legs need to be kind of in a, uh, a raised position, either with pillows. I have a, a bed that uh, adjusts that way. So I'm able to kind of raise my legs. Interesting to know how you sleep. 877-399-9898. Give us a call or send us a text. Let us know what you feel. Um, but uh, according to Rachel Sales, she's the Associate Professor of Neurology at Johns Hopkins Medicine uh, Hospital, sleeping on your back may cause neck pain, though others may find it relieves lower back pain. So depends on the positioning. I was always told if you're lying on your back, <clears throat> have your legs up, not out straight. It's uh, less painful and less stress on the spine. So in, in the back position, you got this thing called the soldier position, where this position involves laying as straight as a soldier, with legs straight, arms basically down to your sides. Uh, sleepers, those soldier sleepers are, are generally more quiet and reserved people in general. Something called the starfish that we talked about, this position consists of lying on your back with both arms stretched upwards towards the pillow. Starfish sleepers are most likely to be loyal, supportive friends who are willing to listen to all your problems. The stargazer, these are all lying on our back, right? The stargazer position, uh, this way a sleeper lies on their back with their arms wrapped around the back of their head. People who sleep in this position are said to have a happy, easygoing disposition and prioritize their loved ones. 
And then the last one for back sleeping is knees up position. So there's no real definition as to why you might sleep in this position, but it's most likely that those who sleep this way find it just more comfortable. The knees up position also occurs in people who are having um, pelvic tilt problems with their lower back, um, forcing their spine to curve. Shortening the, the hamstrings and their legs by bending the knees can return your lower back, your pelvis to a neutral position. So it's just, it's actually just a comfort thing more than anything. It doesn't tell us much about who you are as a person. And the side sleepers, talk about side sleepers real quick here. They sleep in a fetal position, a log position, or a yearner's position. And the fetal position, I, I'm a side sleeper and I'm pretty much a yearner. I sleep more like a yearner and in fetal uh, than I do. So the fetal is obviously you know, knees rolled up to your chest and so on. Um, so sleeping in this position may also mean that you're tough on the outside, but shy and sensitive on the inside. I don't know if that's who I am. Uh, and then the leg position, the log, excuse me, log position, uh, sleeping on your arm, on your side with your arms, legs, and posture more straight. Uh, this position tends to be more people that are social butterflies, friendly, carefree, and popular. And the yearner position, the last one we're talking about, people uh, who sleep like that, uh, kind of legs half out and not, you know, sort of bent up and not really kind of stretched a little bit in the log position. People who sleep like this may be much more open-minded. And frankly, people who sleep on their stomach don't do so well. They have issues with their skin and so on. So... Right now, we're talking about what it feels like to be lonely. Have you ever felt lonely? Um, you know, I sort of feel lonely from time to time. But according to a study here, being lonely poses as much of a risk as smoking, according to the Surgeon General. Uh, in the, in, this is a U.S. Uh, study. But widespread loneliness in the U.S. poses health risks as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, according to the uh, study. And it's costing the health industry billions of dollars annually. About half of the U.S. adults say they've experienced loneliness, according to the 81-page report. And we know that the loneliness is a common feeling that many people experience. It's like hunger or thirst. It's a feeling that the body sends us when something we need for survival is missing. Millions of people in America are struggling in the shadows, and that's not right. That's why they've issued an advisory to pull back the curtain on, this, on a struggle that too many people are experiencing. That's according to a person named Vivek Murthy who is a doctor and uh, specializes in this kind of stuff. And according to Dr. Murthy, this is something we need to pay attention to and really look at quite seriously. Uh, the crisis deepens as a result of, of COVID-19. Uh, in the United, in Canada, by the way, we're finding that one in 10 people in Canada are feeling lonely. That's the study from the Canadian Social Survey. It's updated in uh, August of 2021 or September of 2021. I'm sorry. Uh, lots of numbers here. 21, 15% of women age 15 and older in Canada uh, say they feel lonely, if not always, most of the time. 15 to 24-year-olds, 23% uh, feel lonely pretty much all the time. 15% not as much, but some of the time. Loneliness is a big deal. And according to the experts, certainly in the study that we're talking about, it's as bad as smoking cigarettes. Kimberly Brownlee is a, Canadian, is a Canada research chair and professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, uh, excuse, excuse me, at the University of British Columbia, and is my guest this evening. Kimberly, thanks for being here with us. Good evening, Yona. I, I was reading something about University of Toronto, so I'm sorry I, I got you confused. University of British Columbia, gorgeous, uh, gorgeous setting and uh, beautiful campus. So how does loneliness equate to smoking 12 cigarettes a day? I'm trying to figure this out, how as an, as an ex-smoker trying to 
put these two together. Let me understand this. <laughs> so this the soundbite is that social connection is a significant predictor of longevity. Yeah, so the, the length of your life is affected by your social connections. And the, the psychology evidence is growing and growing to say that your life will be shorter. It's a strong predictor of earlier mortality if you have weak social connections and if you perceive yourself as isolated. And that um, in terms of an earlier death, it is worse than those 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. So it's what, what, what leads to that? Are, are these are the, the people that we're talking about the, being that we're social beings in general? Is it that is it that what is it as a result of the loneliness that affects us um, in terms of this? I know how it affects our mental health, but how does it get to our physical health? In what way does it impact us? So, um, so, so Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General that, that you've referenced, he he has a nice description of this. He says that social connection is baked into our nervous system, that this is actually the, the result of uh, the evolutionary development of our species, that we, we thirst for connection. We, we deeply need to be connected to other people. Um, the social psychologist, Matthew Lieberman, he, he says social connection is a need with a capital N. And in fact, you know, Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs, the, you know, the pyramid we all know, which in fact he didn't uh, come up with, um, that that bottom layer of the hierarchy, our most fundamental needs, Matthew Lieberman says that the social needs should be on that bottom most layer, that, that the, the hierarchy is, is in the wrong order. And, and it, it, you know, it starts in, in babyhood. We have the longest, we are, we are children for a very long time. Our species is dependent uh, in childhood much longer than, than any other species. And we need people throughout our lives, not just when we're babies and, and children. We need people, um, you know, when we lose a job, when we're sick, when we're struggling to get food, when we need a shelter. We need people for companionship and love and care and kindness and everything that makes for a good life. And when we don't get those things, our brains and our bodies start to break down. And are we talking about social interactions, social connections, or and, and, and how are they, if at all, how are they different, let's say, than a romantic connection, romantic interna interaction? Is, are they on the same level, or is it a different story? So, so the, the, two, the two key ideas that, that psychologists study are, are social connections, which come in different forms, and then our perceptions of our connections. And so, so when it comes to our social connections, we have many different types of relationships. We have, um, you know, uh, hopefully a loving partnership. We have hopefully you know, family around us, uh, parents, children, siblings, uh, extended family. Then we have, with luck, our, our work colleagues. And then there's the, the ambient social world around us in the community. You know, is it how friendly are people? How much do we interact with strangers? How much diversity is there in our different types of relationships and the kinds of interactions we get to have? So, so that's all the sort of the concrete material social world we get to navigate. And then distinct from that is our perception of that world. And uh, a lot of the work that psychologists have been doing has been focusing on, on, our, on our perception. Do we feel connected? Uh, or do we feel isolated? And so, so they define loneliness 
as a perception of isolation. So you could actually be in a loving marriage or have close family or good friends, but be deeply lonely. You could perceive yeah. yourself as disconnected. Yeah. Um, and people obviously, since the, you know, since the, we, we learned through the pandemic, uh, having us, you know, being forced to withdraw from, you know, going to work, going to school, going out for coffee or drinks with your friends, whatever you normally would do, had a really negative impact, not on, not just on people's uh, mental health, as, as we all know, but, you know, their ability to sleep, their ability to eat, their desire to go work out. How do they connect? Yeah, so, so the, during, during the pandemic, uh, you know, not only did we lose the, you know, the, the daily contact with family and friends that we take for granted, but we also lost those micro moments of connection with a stranger on the street. You know, we've, we've got our masks up, or if we're you know, in lockdown behind our front doors, we're, we're not getting those tiny moments of connection. And uh, Barbara Fredrickson, the social psychologist in the States, she says that those little micro moments of connection are, that's actually what she calls love. Uh, that love is, love is a feeling, you know, like sadness and, and joy. It, it rises up and then it ebbs away. And when we get that little moment of, of loving, warm affection with someone, it could be with almost anyone, then our, our brains momentarily synchronize, our, our heart rhythms briefly synchronize, our, our chemistries, our whole bodies come in tune with each other. And she says this is crucial for our heart health and, and our mental health. And so when we don't get those moments, our hearts and minds actually become less adept at navigating them, less able to absorb their goodness. So we, you know, we lost a lot during the pandemic, the, the big and the little in terms of social contact. Talking about loneliness, it poses the same risk apparently as smoking 12 or to 15 cigarettes a day. I have an expert. Her name is Kimberly Brownlee, Canadian Research Chair and Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. She's going to join us here in just a minute. Surprisingly or not surprisingly, near one quarter, 25% of the people who lived alone stated that they always felt lonely, more than double the proportion of those who were living with somebody else. And by marital status, those who shared a life with somebody said they always or often feel lonely when three times uh, was three times higher among those who were not married in a common law relationship or in a common law relationship, sorry, 21%. But compared to those who were married or living in a common law relationship, 7%. So a big difference uh, between those. And of those 9%, uh, a larger percentage were women and a smaller percentage uh, in keeping with the study were men. Uh, so I have um, Kimberly back here with me. But before we get there, have a quick listen to Mo from The Simpsons who's talking about his loneliness. You can either walk out with dignity or I can push you down this muddy hill. I'd prefer that you push me, seeing how I'm desperate for any human contact. So there you go. People will do just about anything to get some human contact. Uh, uh, Kimberly, thank you for being here with us. Um, I, I, what I need to understand is how do you combat this? I mean, you know, it's obviously can't, not everyone can go out and make friends. I've got patients who tell me all the time that they just don't do well with people. They feel nervous about trying to make new friends. How do they, how do they get through that? I think it's a multi-pronged process, and just starting with that Simpsons quote, um, journalists who've endured solitary confinement as prisoners say, you know, they look forward to the days that they're interrogated because it's a chance to have some human contact. Um, you know, people who are in prison, the, the, the senior management teams of prisons know their biggest carrot and stick is family visits. Um, yeah. And when people go to prison, especially if they're held in a place far away from home, 
it's a good chance that what social bonds they had will be severed. So that's just one so, context. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, how do people combat this? Like, you know, if you don't have suddenly, you can't suddenly create a huge, you know, group of friends. How, how do you, how do people, what's your advice yeah. or what's the advice that you've gained from this study? So, yeah, so the, the advisory from the U.S. Surgeon General has lots of good ideas. Uh, the U.K. actually uh, put out a strategy five years ago, and it also had lots of good ideas. I'll, I'll share a few nuggets. In the U.K. strategy, they suggested that the Royal Mail po- postal officers might have as part of their job to knock on people's doors and ask, you know, have you chatted to anyone this week? How are you doing? The problem with that proposal uh, is it's opt-in, not opt-out. And so it might not reach the people it needs to reach. Another UK idea was to have family doctors uh, be authorized to issue social prescriptions. So instead of giving someone a drug to deaden the pain, you would get a prescription to go to the community and take art classes or join the dance club. Um, again, the problem there was the Conservative government didn't put any money behind it. They just hoped that there were existing community activities. So the, the U.S. one, um, they're focusing, again, on similar ideas of investing in the social infrastructure of communities. So mm-hmm. is there good free public busing that's safe and accessible and can get the grandparents to the grandkids? Are there good public parks where people can you know, meet strangers and have a chat or go with family and, and socialize. Um, how far are people having to commute in order to do their jobs? How many jobs are they having to do in order to, you know, keep the, keep the house and pay the rent? Families can't socialize if the parents are working two and three jobs in order to make ends meet. So there's, you know, there's many things that uh, you can focus on that the um, educating the public that you know, with this headline of 15 cigarettes a day is actually less bad for your health than yeah. weak social connections and chronic loneliness. Um, they also talk about educating doctors, uh, making sure they're aware that this is this isn't just you know this isn't just like a cold. This isn't a, a fad or a phase for many people. Um, and your know, doctors do report that every day they have a few patients who come to see them just because they're lonely. Yeah, um, I, I, then, I've heard I've heard people that actually go, I'm sorry, people that actually go no, to doctor's no. appointments, dentist appointments, hairdressers, get their nails done just for the company. Right, just for the company, yeah. Uh, and so it, it's, we tend to think of this as a, you know, as sort of a luxury good, instead of the first thing to be cut are the social care services. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in my own work, I argue that our, our access to social connection is a fundamental human right. Um, and it's, it's surprisingly, it, it's sort of the poorest of the poor cousins in the human rights debate. You know, there, mm-hmm. we've, we've sort of finally recognized the right to be free from poverty as a genuine human right, right to health and education. You know, those are, they've, they're getting their attention. But our right to have access to decent human contact, that still hasn't had its day yet in human rights debates. Um, and I'm hoping some of this work will will push that forward. Yeah, it sounds like it. You know, you're talking about uh, prescriptions like uh, social prescriptions from doctors. I think last year, um, uh, uh, some doctors out in B- your way in BC started prescribing things like taking a walk, uh, going, you know, uh, going going out and meeting people in a park. Uh, it became a prescription as part of any other prescription with along with medication and so on. So I think you're you're definitely onto something, and this kind of work obviously will drive that uh, forward. Um, does 
Kimberly, does does technology help or hurt in this situation based on your studies and information? I, I the the evidence from psychology is it depends. So you know we are more <laughs> more globalized than we used to be. Family often lives far away, so being able to call regularly, seeing each other's photos, sending texts, you know that that's absolutely better than nothing. Um, the problem is that you know if everyone in in your face to face contact in your in person moments, if everyone's on their phone, you know essentially somewhere else, you're not getting the benefits of those micro connections or deep deep moments with family. Um, and until the technology becomes a lot better, virtual contact just isn't the same. You know, if if something happens in my environment, you get suddenly cold or you know, there's a there's a bang to, to next to me. The person on on Zoom isn't going to register that. When we do Zoom calls, we tend not to remember them. Whereas when we do in-person meetings, those we build memories, we build connections. Our mirror neurons fire. We uh, relate to each other more closely. So it's it, it, I I wouldn't say it's worse than nothing, uh, but it's not. It would seem it's not doing us on on. Overall, it's not doing us much good. And, and younger people tend to be on social media, uh, certainly much more than they were 20 years ago. And, and some say they're there all the time. And it doesn't make them feel good about themselves. It makes them uh, feel you know, unworthy and more lonely. Did you find yourself, if I can ask a personal question, did you find it more difficult for you during the pandemic uh, to meet and, and, and greet and be a part of people's lives? Or were you able to make it work? <laughs> Uh, it was a strange time for me because I moved from the UK to Canada during okay. the pandemic, uh, and oh and my. and that that moment, you know, changing jobs, changing countries, you know, changing houses, those are actually all moments where you are more likely to feel lonely. The sort of big disruptions in your lives, and so I, you know, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by loving family that helped to to buffet that, buffer me. Hey, you know, sometimes you think about whether you got the actual A you deserved on the paper or whether your teacher may have, you know, slipped you a little better mark because you're really more like a B-plus student, but they wanted to make you feel better. For me, it was a more of a getting from a D to maybe a C-minus so I could pass some stuff. Uh, but we're talking about raising a whole world of illiterate individuals as a result of the pandemic and rushing kids through something that felt or smelt like school, but really wasn't. Um, have a listen here real quick, though. It's um, it's a pop from the popular con comedy, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where Charlie Day, he's one of the characters, uh, he's illiterate and he refuses to learn how to read and write. Hear, hear what he has to say here. I think you might be dyslexic, bro. Action. I'll read the words you wrote. This, you should vote. Me, I leave power. Good. Thank you. Thank you. If you vote me, I'm hot. Taxes, they'll be lower. Son, the Democratic vote for me is right thing to do, Philadelphia. So do. This doesn't make any sense. So we have Rick on the phone here from Maple Ridge, BC. He's going to talk to us a little bit about loneliness. But Rick, I want to ask you a question before we get to that that conversation. Um, do you think we're doing a good job by getting our kids marks that maybe they don't deserve just to keep them moving along the way? Well, that, that's not really the uh, the topic that I wanted to speak to. If that's okay, I, I you know I was interested. I phoned with regard to the loneliness issue. If 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 I can. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I just figured I'd throw that question out to you. So, what's your thought on loneliness, buddy? 
Well, I guess in light of, is it, is it a doctor there from UBC? In light of what you said about all the damages of uh, loneliness and, you know, isolation and all that kind of stuff, can she finally admit as a, you know, as an academic that the sort of one-dimensional approach to the COVID that we went through for three years was not correct? The one-dimensional approach was get vaccinated, lock the door, you'll be okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're I, not I, I, okay. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the call, uh, Rick. I, I really do. I think the conversation isn't what we did and should we look back. I'm really talking about looking forward so we can help people be at their best. But uh, clearly the results are, uh, speak for themselves, my friend, and you can we can see that it wasn't okay and it, 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 it we're not okay. And yes, as a society, I think worldwide, we made a lot of really uh, wrong decisions. But um, I think some of these decisions that we're talking about have a huge impact on our kids. And the kind of marks that our kids are coming out of high school with, you know, there's kids in 11th grade and 12th grade that I've spent a lot of time with uh, doing virtual therapy and virtual coaching uh, right through the pandemic was working, you know, 12, 13 hours a day, six days a week, seeing as many people as we could that were really in a bad way. And kids were telling me like, Yona, I just got like a 79 on my test. And I said, well, that's a great mark. Yeah, but you don't understand. There's no way. Like I hardly studied and I didn't know very many of the of the answers. <clears throat> so the question then becomes if we're if we're helping kids, you know, it, it, we're talking about grade inflation. That's really the, the 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 topic of conversation. It's called grade inflation. When you give somebody a bump up, right? So <clears throat> maybe they got a 56, but you give them a bump to a 60. Or they got a 72, you give them a bump to a 78, or you know, 76 to a bump to 80, <clears throat> so they get into another category or help move them along. We think we're helping our kids along. I mean, how many parents, and if you're here, if you're out there, you want to give me a call, 877-399-9898. You as a parent or ever had your parents call your teachers and go, can you give them a better mark? You know, my son or my daughter, you know, they were having a difficult time and, you know, they studied really hard, but they weren't able to concentrate because Uncle Billy was sick and, you know, all kinds of reasons why your kids shouldn't get the marks that they got. They should get better marks because every parent thinks their kids are the smartest, right? Maybe not every parent, lots of parents think their kids are the smartest kids in school. And when they don't get marks reflecting that, they get down on the teacher, not down on the kids, not the right way to go. So the whole concept of great inflation and universities are doing it too. They're, they're rounding up certain numbers to help you know more kids get accepted uh, to university coming out of high school in the last couple of years because the kids coming out of high school in the last couple of years don't really qualify. They, they don't really have the same grade structure as they did prior to the, the pandemic, the, the whole hybrid learning, in-class learning, no learning at all, you know, off and on, are we in, are we out, had a huge negative impact on the kids in those grades, the students in those grades. And now that it's time to graduate, now it's time to like, you know, they got to get out of school. You can't, you can't hold back a whole year of, 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 of students from grade 11 because they didn't do all the work. So you hold them all back and then you hold a group ahead of them back and the group behind them back. So you have to, you have to advance students, but we're advancing them. I think through these last couple of years with marks that they probably didn't deserve. Now that's not all of them, just some of them. And it's, it, it just takes one that's not going to be at their best. We're not giving them the best opportunity to be the best that they can be because we may not be telling the truth about their abilities, about their achievements. You know, if they're not A students, don't give them an A. You know, I'm a big believer that the way young people learn is when they make mistakes. You know, when you come home with a D or an E or an F, 
boy, you wake up. But the difference between an 84 and an 87, does anybody really stay awake at night? I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I, I don't know if, if you would. I mean, love to hear from you. Give me a call and we can talk about it or text me and we can talk about it. But I think what the, the, the issue isn't whether it's a few marks here and there. The issue is, are these young people ready for the next level of education? Are they, in fact, ready to go on to college or university? Do they have the skills, the academic skills, the social skills? Oh, my goodness. We just talked about loneliness and the impact of loneliness uh, on, on us as human beings is equivalent to, to smoking, you know, a half a pack or more of cigarettes every day. Half a large pack, that is. Right? So, you know, we're not looking just at marks here. We're looking at whether they're ready even socially to be moving on to college or university, whether they have the learning skills, the study skills, the social skills that they lost as a result of being shut down. You know, you know, speaking to Rick here a little earlier from Maple Ridge um, in British Columbia, he was saying, you know, can we admit that we made mistakes? Sure, I'll admit that we all made mistakes. I, I, no one asked me, but I'm telling you, we all made mistakes. And, uh, you know, as adults, we made mistakes. As parents, we made mistakes. We did a horrible job making sure our kids could come through this stuff properly. They were the, talk about collateral damage. We're going to see the collateral damage in our young people and our children and our teenagers for years to come well into their college and university years. You know, I've got kids in university now for the first year that I work with who say to me, they, you know, they're, they're now what, three quarters, almost finished the year pretty much, right? They just don't feel like they got out of this year what they wanted to. They just weren't so ready. They weren't so prepared. Many, many students spent more time going back and forth to home than they might have prior, in prior years where they didn't have the same experience of during the lockdown, during the, the inability to, to, to congregate, the inability to, to learn properly in a proper environment. So as much as we're talking about grade inflation and helping people kind of give them a leg up and punch them through the system so they move along, we're not doing anybody any favors. If your kid is supposed to fail a subject, let them fail a subject. You know, if you're at work and you're studying for something to, to move up in your, in, your, in your business, to move up in your job, and you don't achieve the marks you need to achieve, you got to do it again. A friend of mine's writing the real estate course. Uh, she has nothing else to do with her life. She's pretty much retired, so she decided to go into real estate. And so she wrote the real, exa real estate exam three times before she got it right. And she wasn't like all bummed and miserable that she didn't get it right the first two times. She understood that she needed to learn more in order to pass that particular exam, that particular test of, uh, you know, basically the ability to understand the stuff you need to understand to be a real estate agent. And of course, it's more difficult today than it was years ago. But not preparing for the right testing and not holding anybody accountable to the right testing and not making sure that people have the kind of marks that they deserve for the kind of work that they've done. And it's our in our inability to teach them the things we need to teach them. Somehow you need to be able to account for this. And colleges and universities are doing exactly that. They're accounting for the shortcomings in the education that they, these young people learned in high school. Just means we're going to have a whole generation of people graduating that probably aren't really truly ready. You know, it's hard to do, but when you're when 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 we don't do well and the people in our lives don't do well, it's important that they learn from their mistakes. You don't learn how to stand up unless you've fallen down. It's important to let people fall down if that's where they're at. And that's just, you know, the way life is sometimes, right? Ooh, 
talking about kids coming out before the break here, the first hour, we're talking about kids not getting the marks that they actually deserve. In other words, on the downside, not the upside. So, um, you know, doing things like changing marks to make sure kids get into certain programs that maybe they didn't earn their way into, really not setting them up for success long-term. Maybe short-term it looks better, but really we're probably setting them up to fail. So I want to talk now, continue to talk about how to raise a champion how to teach your kids to be the best that they can be. And we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff here going back to the beginning of this series. And, you know, we talked about the things you can give them and we talked about the types of things you can teach your kids. We talked about the types of things you need to learn about them and, and, know, and things you need to know, you know, know their friends, know their teachers and so on. Now we're going to get down to the, some of the modeling behavior, some of the stuff that we can talk about in terms of things that you can do as an adult in some young person's life. So teach them things and say things, for example, right? Um, and we have, you know, so we, we need to talk about, um, you know, how to, how, to, how to talk to kids in a way that teaches them how to talk to us properly as well. So we're talking about things like teaching your kids how to say good morning and good night. And the reason we do that is it's just, A, it's pop, it's, it's polite thing to do, and it helps them engage with people in a simple way. So saying good morning to somebody, saying good evening or good night to somebody, good afternoon. Very important that you say nice things to your children so that they're going to say nice things to other people as well. Uh, being able to say to them, I'm proud of you. Telling the young people in your life, the children in your life, that you're proud of them. Very important that they understand um, that, you know, you, you feel good about what they're doing with their life. And it's really important that you're able to tell them that, you know, when you do something that you're that you've done perhaps wrong in the relationship with your the young people in your life, your kids, whomever they are, that it's your fault. Be able to say, you know what, it's my fault. Because you know what? When you teach children, when you say things like good morning and good night, and when you say things to them like you're proud of them, they recognize it's an emotion that you're sharing with them that's meaningful. It has real value. Saying to somebody, to a young person in your life as an adult, that it's my fault, taking ownership for something in the relationship is very important because it shows that you're vulnerable, that you're human too. And it teaches young people in your life that they can also say it's my fault, right? So other things that you can do, telling, you know, telling them, you know, you can do it, like the, like the Nike commercial, just do it, right? You can do it. Encouraging them, providing encouraging words is always helpful. Is you know, one way to create a champion is make them feel like a champion. And by telling somebody, hey, you know what? You can do this. I know you can. I've got you. I know you can do this. It's huge. has a huge impact on how they feel. Saying that you believe in them. You know, I believe in you. I know you can do it. I believe in you. I, I, I stand behind you. I've seen what you can do before. That's why I support you. Being able to say things like thank you. That doesn't sound like a lot, but being able to say, I, to be able to say thank you, right? And being able to say things like I love you. It teaches them how to do it as well. Very important that you say these things to people so that they feel that they're somewhat real. We have Catherine. She's on the phone from Surrey, BC. She wants to talk about, uh, she was going to talk to us about how things have changed in the 80s in terms of topics and, and testing. Perhaps she'll, uh, she'll call again uh, at the end of the show. And we can probably talk to her about it then. Uh, but we're going to continue to talk about, um, about uh, the stuff in terms of how we reach kids. I'm going to, I'm going to ask Catherine what she thinks. Hey, Catherine from Surrey, BC. How are you? Oh, I'm here. 
on again, off again, on again, on. You're like you're like you're like a lot of my What's going on? You're like a lot of the relationships I had in my life. On again, off again, on again, off again. They last for like a minute. Um, so we're talking about rate. We're talking about thanks for thanks for doing this, by the way. Um, awesome that you could join us today. Uh, but you know, we're talking Thank about you, you know, th- 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 my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We're talking about things that you can say to kids and teach them how to, you know, we do this series every week about you know, for the last number of weeks about teaching kids how to be, um, you know, champions, be at their best. Um, but you know, you want to, you want to talk to me, you think, I think about the testing and stuff as it compares to perhaps, um, I can do what, both. Like in, what you know, so, so I think yeah. they go together, right? I think they go together. They do, I don't think you can create I, I a champion. A story with, for both. <laughs> exactly. So let me have it. Microphone's all yours. Okay. Okay. When my kids were little, I would write little notes. If they blew it that day, I would write a note and stick it under their door so that when they woke up in the morning, and they were so encouraged because I'd write a bunch of encouraging words for them. Very nice. And did they appreciate it? Did they say nice things? Oh, totally. They loved it. Because my my son had ADDHD. And my daughter had defiant disorder, <laughs> oppositional defiant disorder. So oh, I, that, I that must I have been little. interesting. Yeah, oh, that must have, that must have been interesting, right? Yeah. So how did how, how did you how did you coach your kids, or, or how how did you manage? How are they? How old are they now? Oh my, <laughs> forty. <laughs> oh, oh God, my, you, my son's forty. My son's you sound forty. Like, you sound like you're forty. Um, okay. So <laughs> Thank you. if, if you want me to believe that you have a 40 year old, I will. Okay. So you have this, how did they, how did they turn, I was how a did teenager they turn out? when I had my son? Awesome. Awesome. He has his own store. He sells skateboard materials, like the shirts and skateboards. On. He has his own shop. Yeah. He's doing really good. Yeah. He, nice. he was so, the one that was, had so, the ADHD, so, positive so, so influence. What, Exactly. So what do you tell yeah. parents or anybody who's listening out there? What do you Because it sounds like you had a bit of a challenge, right? So, um, you, know, the, the, you know, having a, ch- a child with defiant disorders also can be really challenging. How did you manage without losing your stuff? Well, I was a single mother and I also sang professionally. So I had okay. a very good foundation of who I was. That was so I it was always positive influence, positive influence, positive. That's all I did. Encourage them, encourage them, encourage them all day. Do they do they have do they have kids? Yes. (laughs) And and are are they encouraging and uplifting? Are they the kind of parent that you were with them? Are they with their kids the same way? One is and one is very struggling. So because you got to learn your way, right? Your own way, yeah. but my, yeah, yeah, yeah. One is, and one is kind of struggling. But I, I, I want to say, you know, um, with the uh, that in 1982, I went and got my GED, and I messed up by one point, oh and my. they sent it back and said, no, oh. you. you, you so it's such a drastic change from nowadays, right? I, I, yeah. That's why I called in. Yeah, today they would today they would have let you slide through. So I'm glad you called, Catherine. You know, I appreciate your excellent caller and a wonderful listener. So stay, t- you know, make sure you call us again. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but I'm going to continue you. just a little bit of time. My pleasure. A little bit of time we've got left. Ask your kids how they feel. Ask them what's wrong. Talk to them. Having conversations with your children are exactly 
how Catherine got through her years and how every parent gets through the years. If you don't talk to your children, you can't help them grow. You can't help them be the best that they can be. You got to ask questions. You got to say things. You got to give them things to believe in. You know, Catherine was just saying how she just kept encouraging them positive, 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 positive all the time. And that's what kids need. They need encouragement. They need support. They need loving, tender care. And clearly, Catherine sounds like she was that and is and was that kind of mom. So we need more Catherines out there that can uh, raise their kids with or without the struggles. And at the end of the day, it's a great um, it's a great payoff, right? Raising healthy children, raising children to be champions and to be at their best. There's there's nothing. There's just nothing better. It just gives you all the excitement that you need and makes you feel like you've done something meaningful and something, you know, worthwhile because you can see the results, not just in them, but now you can see it in her kids and her kids' kids. So it's a wonderful uh, circle that this thing goes around in. You do good, you get good, you do good, you get good and like that. Speaking of which, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Michael J. Fox. He opens up about his Parkinson's disease. We've got a special place for us uh, for that on our show uh, every week when we're talking about these kinds of things. So... I want to talk right now about uh, Parkinson's disease. We do chat uh, fairly often about this disease. I have a friend and a colleague um, who's also my boss. His name is Larry Gifford. He is, uh, he started something called PD Avengers, Parkinson's disease Avengers. I am in fact a PD Avenger. I now have a t-shirt and a hat. So I'm still waiting for my cape, which he promises. But Larry is a hell of a guy. And he has Parkinson's and has had it for a while. He's a fairly young fellow, um, ha- does a, a great job here with Chorus and uh, Global and the work that he does. And he does so much for the world of Parkinson's uh, in terms of helping those that are suffering um, get a voice. And um, he really does a lot for the fundraising um, worldwide, for fundraising and understanding research and just a great advocate and speaker for those that are plagued with such a horrible, horrible disease. Well, so is Michael J. Fox, who you know, and I'm sure you've seen him shake a little bit when you see him on TV, if you've seen him recently. And he was talking about how he's never going to be 80 years old. He says it sucks having Parkinson's at 61 years of age. He says he was talking to Jane Pauley, the interviewer. It's getting tougher. It's getting harder. Every day you just suffer a little bit more. That's just the way it is. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's back in 1990 when he was just 29 years old. And Parkinson's, if you don't know, it's a disorder that uh, attacks your central nervous system, mainly affects one's motor functions, and the condition causes gradual damage to parts of a person's brain, resulting in numbers of symptoms, including tremors, slow movement, um, being still, and inflexible muscles. There's no real cure for the condition. You just sort of have to learn how to suck it up and live with it. Uh, Michael J. Fox speaks here uh, in an interview. Why don't we have a quick listen? I can never be still until I couldn't be still. And still has other meanings. Still here. Endurance. Still committed. I'll take them all. Yeah, I'm talking to Dr. Daniel DeLuca. He's a movement disorder fellow at the University of Toronto. Dr. DeLuca, thanks for being here with us this evening. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure for having you. Uh, to have you. Um, the the. You know, it's such a terrible disease. I've I've learned so much about it through my friend Larry and through being a PD Avenger and the stuff that they that they share. And um, you know, it it can you know it affects so many people. Yet I see people like Michael J. Fox and people like Larry Gifford uh, who are are real heroes. People really at their best because while while trying to manage their own stuff, 
they're out there doing what they can to advocate for others and sharing information and just making it known uh, whatever it is that needs to be known to help this thing uh, move along and perhaps come up with uh, a cure of some form down the road. But why why do you think um, why do you think he's talking about not turning eighty? And when people look at their lives, is this something they reflect on? And I guess a disease like this, maybe along the size of of anything else, like MS or you know Huntington's disease. Are there other diseases that play the same role as Parkinson's? Parkinson's in terms of slow creepers, but you know you're just not going to live as long as perhaps the guy next door. Yeah. So absolutely, um, we all know that uh, neurological diseases are uh, a, a very large burden to society, and that include a lot of the chronic conditions, including. Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, other forms of dementia, and as you mentioned, uh, multiple sclerosis, but you can also consider other neurological disorders um, like stroke. Uh, they're obviously right. very different conditions, but uh, uh, once we think about chronic disorders, those are the ones that can last for a longer time and are slowly progressive and that usually affects motor function and quality of life, uh, very different than other medical conditions in general. So would people consider it a slow death? Yeah, so uh, Parkinson's disease is a very uh, heterogeneous condition. It's very unique depending on the patient. Uh, so he has, uh, as you mentioned, Michael J. Fox was diagnosed when he was 29. When we think about Parkinson's disease, we think about patients in their late 60s or 70s. Uh, yeah. So it's quite different for, for each patient. Uh, depending on the form of Parkinson's disease and depending on the type of treatment they have, uh, they can definitely have a, a good quality of life. And that should be, uh, should be very important to patients and, and all listeners. Uh, but definitely it's a condition that over time can significantly affect uh, quality of life. Uh, but in general, we, we always tend to consider that people don't die directly of Parkinson's disease, but mostly related to complications of Parkinson's disease, including mm -hmm. perhaps uh, falls that leads to, to fractures or and hospitalization, or maybe trouble swallowing, or maybe uh, an infection like pneumonia or urinary tract infection. So uh, 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 there has been said that people don't die of Parkinson's disease, but they die with Parkinson's disease in a way. So, you know, you talked about, um, you know, you talked about uh, you see something like this in somebody in their 60s, and that's kind of who you expect to see shaking and living with those kinds of symptoms. Uh, is, is, it, is it not typical? I mean, where, where is Michael J. Fox in the scheme of, of, uh, of um, uh, I guess, along the curve of where, when people start to get it? In, in the 20s is uncommon or more common than we know? Yeah, so usually we think about patients in their in their 60s. That's the mm -hmm. the average age for someone with Parkinson's disease or older. Uh, we now consider uh, young onset Parkinson's disease when it's uh, younger than than 50, and according to some people, 45. So it's uh, it's generally much much uh, less likely and much uh, more rare than those presenting in their 60s. Uh, but still, if you are at a large uh, center, uh, it is very likely that you're going to see patients that can be as early as uh, as in their 20s or or 30s. Um, 
again, and uh, we also think about how this can affect productivity, quality of life, uh, their work, their relationship with their families, their potential of uh, of having kids and so on. But uh, compared to the to the whole population with Parkinson's disease, uh, it's a it's a much more unusual form presenting in, at this at this age. So somebody at twenty, you know, who's diagnosed like he was in his early twenties, uh, he was twenty nine, who thinks he might not live to eighty. Somebody in their sixties who has Parkinson's also may not live past eighty, or where their life's curve be now longer. So like from him from twenty nine to eighty versus you know a count let's say from sixty would do. Chances are you can live beyond those twenty years or not. Yeah. So. Uh... We, we often say and uh, uh, that uh, we never see two patients with Parkinson's disease that are exactly the same. Each patient is, is quite unique. Uh, depending on the form of Parkinson's disease, and we have multiple forms, how aggressive it is, how fast it is, what are some of the other associated symptoms like uh, dementia or perhaps uh, uh, walking imbalance or, or maybe... Yeah. Uh, issues yeah. with blood pressure. So that really defines how fast things are going to be and how likely they are to to die at an earlier age. Uh, but in general, those are the factors that have been suggested to, to affect gotcha. more uh, survival rather than, than yeah. the age itself. But obviously yeah. patients that live with the disease for a longer time might have more complications that accumulate uh, in the... I see. In the yeah. We're talking about Michael J. Fox here right now. We're talking about how he came out in an interview this week, uh, past week, and talked about how he's not going to live to 80. He was diagnosed at 29 with Parkinson's disease. I have an expert with me on the phone here. Um, his name is Dr. Dan Daniel DeLuca. He's a movement disorders fellow at the University of Toronto. Dr. DeLuca, thanks for sticking around. Um, listen, how do you improve the quality of life for somebody who's got Parkinson's? Yeah, that's definitely a great question and uh, uh, a topic of interest to a lot of patients and uh, researchers. Uh, nowadays, we mostly rely on medications to treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, meaning the tremor, the stiffness, um, and sometimes the other symptoms that are not as common or not as recognized by other people, such as perhaps the low blood pressure, the cognitive difficulties, the gait imbalance, and so on. We also have the advancement of uh, uh, surgical therapies, including deep brain stimulation, which is almost like a pacemaker mm -hmm. brain mm -hmm. that has mm -hmm. uh, helped a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease. And more on, we have uh, recognized the importance of this multidisciplinary approach, focusing not only on medications, but also on improving the quality of life of patients with Parkinson's disease by uh, social activities, intellectually challenging activities, and uh, and so on. But unfortunately, we still don't have a drug that slows down the disease progression. Um, yeah. We're still looking at symptomatic drugs that just alleviate the symptoms of the disease. Um, let's listen to what uh, Michael J. Fox says here in an interview. For him, being still is a big part of it. We'll get to that in just a second. Let's have a listen to a quick interview here. I can never be still until I can be still. And still has other meanings. Still here. Endurance. Still committed. I'll take them all. 
So still, uh, doctor, in terms of the stillness, are we talking about being able to get away from the shaking? I would think that, God forbid, it was something I would be born, you know, be be diagnosed with. I would think that the the for me anyway, it would be the the one of the things that would be difficult to cope with would be the the constant shaking and the lack of control over that. Can we talk about that a little bit and and um, how that really becomes difficult for people to live with? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh... One of the most recognized symptoms of Parkinson's disease is a tremor, um, which affects quite a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease. Uh, yeah. We should note that uh, tremor is not necessary and not all patients with Parkinson's disease have tremor. And in fact, a lot of patients, when they come to our clinic and uh, they get surprised when they are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and they don't have tremor. Uh, but it's quite common. Uh, a lot of the patients come with, with no tremor. And if they do, we have a lot of effective therapies to treat the underlying tremor. One of the most bothersome symptoms to patients can be uh, what, what Michael J. Fox is describing or what many people describe as the feeling of feeling uh, frozen, for example, and unable mm -hmm. to move. Uh, this is slow movements. And for that, mm -hmm. we also have good therapies. But over time, some patients develop involuntary movements in, in respect to this medication and uh, with the progression of the disease. So on top of the, 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 this kind of frozen movements, they can also have involuntary movements of their head, neck, shoulder, arms that uh, is in part related to the therapy that, that we, we, gave, we give them. Uh, but you're right, the tremor also affects a lot of patients, but uh, some of the medications and also the surgical therapies that we have been using are quite effective for that. So if I was, if you were to look at a patient that's got Parkinson's disease and you were to say, you know, you're obviously a medical doctor um, and you look at it from a medical perspective, uh, simple things, simple things like eating properly, sleeping properly, the things I just tell everybody about sleeping properly, eating properly, getting some kind of fitness or physical activity daily. Are these things that are helpful and in what way can someone with Parkinson's disease do better, perhaps with better nutrition, better sleep, and better exercise? Yeah, absolutely. That's a very important question and uh, uh, something that often neurologists uh, miss or don't have enough time to discuss with, with their patients. Besides the medications that we use in clinic, we now recognize the importance of other non-pharmacological approaches. Uh, for example, something that we tell our patients on a daily basis is the importance of exercise. And that's uh, probably the closest thing that we have that can potentially impact uh, your quality of life and how the disease is going to progress. And in fact, they're doing a lot of studies looking if exercise, in fact, slows down the disease progression. And it's, uh, it, there's quite a lot of hope uh, that exercise is going to be one of the key factors in that sense. But overall, it's we amazing. suggest, uh, I'm sorry? No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry, please. Yeah, no, yeah. So we often uh, also mention that uh, a healthy diet uh, is also very important, not only for the Parkinson's disease, but for the other medical conditions. Uh, for example, to avoid having, along with the Parkinson's disease, uh, some issues with their blood pressure, with their cholesterol, or maybe with their heart, that can also uh, accumulate with some of the problems of Parkinson's disease 
and this can result in additional problems. So in general, a healthy lifestyle, a healthy diet, exercise, uh, and also um, psychological support, uh, as I mentioned before, with uh, social activities and also intellectually challenging activities. Those are very important uh, things that patients can do to improve their quality of life. You know, we're finding, doctor, that I was going to say, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to say that we're finding more and more that people are talking about, you know, uh, exercise, 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 you know, getting over a disease to prevent a disease, to make, you know, to help your, your life, you know, uh, last longer, you know, lo longer longevity uh, for somebody, even with cancer, God forbid, right? So um, I want to ask you something, though. Um, is, it, is, it a, is it a foregone conclusion that someone with Parkinson's will not live, uh, be able to live uh, essentially a, a normal quality of life with being able to deal with the things that they have to deal with if they're able to do the things like eat, sleep, and, and exercise. Uh, but can they, can they look for somewhat of a normal life going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, being such a different condition for each patient uh, it is very important to try to prevent some of the complications that might come uh, along the way with Parkinson's disease, uh, being able and making sure that you have a follow-up with a neurologist, that you are taking the right medications for you, and that you are taking care of these uh, non-pharmacological or non-drug uh, issues that we have described, like exercise and uh, intellectually challenging activities, uh, psychosocial support, and this can definitely increase your likelihood of living a, a, a more uh, normal and healthy life with Parkinson's disease. There are definite aggressive forms, which are not the typical forms of Parkinson's disease, but I think in general, um, most patients might uh, benefit from a lot of these activities, and some of them might have even a more slowly progressive type of disease that uh, that is going to be close to someone who does not have Parkinson's disease and they have they can be mildly affected in their day-to-day -day life.